Mark chapter 2, verses 1 to 17. Jesus forgives and heals a paralyzed man. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. They gathered in such large, large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing to him a paralyzed man, carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, Why does the fellow, this fellow talk like that? He's, a blasph he's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this was the way they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier to say? Which is easier to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. He got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. Jesus calls Levi and eats with sinners. Once again, Jesus went out uh, beside the lake. A large crowd came to him, and he began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me. Jesus told him, and Levi got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law, who, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but those who are ill. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. This is God's word. Good morning. Let me add my welcome. My name's Phil. I'm the associate vicar. To keep uh, Mark 2 open, we uh, looked at verses 1 to 12 last week, but uh, it's really one big passage, and so uh, we're going to just focus on 13 to 17 now. You've got an outline which uh, shows you where we're going. Let's pray, and then we'll look at it together. Father God, please would you impress on our hearts the wonder of your love for us and the completeness of our welcome this morning. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's one of the, the classic journalistic gotchas, the, the photograph 
that basically, as good as ends a political career, there was Ed Miliband and the bacon sandwich. I mean, it just he never really recovered, poor man. Uh, but more seriously are the photos, not with, a, not with an offensive bit of food. Uh, no, apparently, it's a political rule. You know, it's like never direct children in, in theatre and never eat um, bacon sandwiches. It's, they, I don't know. Anyway, they, they say that. But a much more serious kind of gotcha is the politician with an unsavoury character. Uh, in many ways, Jeremy Corbyn's bid to become Prime Minister never really survived. The, the pictures and the audio recordings of him with terrorists are uh, pretty happy about it. Uh, it just, he's never really recovered from that. Or um, the, the, the pictures of Nigel Farage that supposedly showed him as a young man with a BNP leader. You know, the, the, those scandals, it's very hard for a politician to escape when there's been where you hang around with people like that, I'm sorry, but we don't want you leading us. The response is usually, oh, look, I had no idea they'd be attending the event, or uh, I had no idea they held those views, or uh, mistakes were certainly made, but uh, we have learned some very important lessons. Wonderful. Well, here in Mark 2, the religious leaders think they've got their gotcha moment with Jesus. He's caught eating dinner with a bunch of very unsavory characters. The kind of people you cross the road to avoid. And when Jesus is challenged, what does he say? Verse 17. Oh no, it's not the healthier need a doctor, but those who are ill. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Yeah, yeah, my, my very mission in life is to hang out with people like this. Yeah, it's no surprise. Take a photo of me on any day and you'll find me with people like that. See, the heart of the good news of Christianity is that Jesus did not come to gather up the worthy, but to heal the unworthy. He came for those weighed down with guilt and shame, those who are despised by society, written off, cancelled. He came for those that no one else would touch with a barge pole. Perhaps that's historically, actually, why the aristocracy was always so resistant to the gospel in this country. Because the truth is, whether we'll receive Jesus gladly and whether we think that the central message of Jesus' salvation is good news, well, it's largely down to whether we're willing to accept, I am a sinner. I am a sinner. We need to recognize that we ourselves are the very kind of people that a respectable God should not be caught hanging out with. And that's an unpalatable message in a culture which is obsessed with self-esteem and the importance of self-love. But we've got to own the fact we're not quite as good as we appear, let's be honest. Most of us know that there is a selfishness and perversion in our hearts, which very few others would guess from the polite masks that we've learned to wear. But here's the irony. You will never be secure in God's acceptance until you own the fact that you are, not un- you are not acceptable. You'll never be genuinely secure in the acceptance and the love of God until you're willing to own the fact that you are not acceptable and lovable by nature. That's when the message of a saviour who came for sinners becomes just wonderful news. So we're going to look um, relatively briefly at the passage and then we're going to spend a bit more time thinking through why it matters. So verse 13, once again, Jesus went out beside the lake, a large crowd came to him and he began to teach them. 
As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Now, Galilee, um, I think we might have a map, is, uh, it's not a Roman district at this time. So Galilee's up in the north. You'll see Jerusalem right down in the south. Um, that's, uh, that's the whole of, the, of Israel at the time. But Galilee's way up in the north, and it's not a Roman um, district at this point. So the issue with Levi being a tax collector is not that he's collaborating with the Romans, like the tax collectors in Jerusalem. Levi is an agent of Herod Antipas. But the reputation of tax collectors in Galilee is just as bad, although for a different reason. They're known as profiteers and thieves. You paid for the right to be a tax collector. And so once you'd bought your, your license, then the more money you can squeeze out of people, the richer you become. Other historical records confirm uh, what we can tell here, that they're pretty despised people. From what we know, as soon as you became a tax collector, you're kicked out of the local synagogue, the equivalent of the church. And you were seen as so, uh, so morally corrupt that you weren't even allowed to appear as a witness in a legal case because no one would trust your word. And so Levi has rejected both God and his local community for one reason, I want to get rich. But Jesus, when he sees him, he says to Levi, verse 14, follow me, Jesus told him. And Levi got up and followed him. Now we know from the other Gospels that this Levi is Matthew, the one who was one of Jesus' apostles who wrote Matthew's Gospel. And back then it was relatively common to have two names, uh, a Hebrew Semitic name and a Greek name, Levi Matthew. Uh, I doubt this went down well with the other disciples when you think about it. Lots of them are fishermen, and where is Levi's tax booth? On the shore of the sea. So who's he squeezing for all his tax money, duties out of the fishermen. Must have been a fun conversation. I've got a new recruit, fellas. Hi. (laughs) Remember me? But Jesus welcomes Levi. And look, just briefly, if, if a tax collector can become one of Jesus' disciples, a leader of the Christian movement, an author of the gospel, then none of us is disqualified by our background or our past. You cannot have lived a life so messy so wrong that I'm sorry Jesus can't possibly use you. Jesus calls a tax collector. Secondly, Jesus eats with the undesirables. Now, in a sense, the the call of Levi um, is, well, as offensive as it may have been to the other disciples, it does fit with our idea about what a good religious leader should do. So it goes to a very sinful person and then calls them away from their wicked lifestyle to follow him. Great. Okay, But, well, what he does next is very different. Look at verse 15. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. Now, this is much more revolutionary. Jesus doesn't just call Levi away from his old life. He also goes and hangs out with Levi at his home with all of his wicked friends and takes his own disciples in there. Levi's not alone in being a tax collector. Mark tells us there were lots of tax collectors and sinners who followed him. Now, clearly, sinners is not being used in the technical theological sense of someone who is sinful and unacceptable to God, because tax collectors are obviously sinful too. Uh, Given the the comment by the Pharisees in in verse 16, he hangs out with tax collectors and sinners. It seems that sinners is 
at this point, some kind of an insult. Uh, perhaps in the way chav is contemptuously used in this country for people we despise. Sinners is shorthand, therefore, for shameful, disgraceful, publicly vilified, undesirable, for loan sharks, pimps, thugs, convicted criminals, misogynists, maybe even politicians these days. And here's Jesus sharing a meal with them. There is something about eating a meal with people. It's not an arm's length interaction. Jesus isn't just uh, preaching a message to them. He's sitting at the table with them. You, to eat a meal with someone, it, it just looks like you're comfortable in their company. Now here, Levi is the host, but it is a hint at the astounding truth in the heart of the gospel that when you put your trust in Jesus, you don't just change religion. I was atheist, Buddhist, whatever, and now I, now I follow Jesus. You don't just change religion. You become a child of God, part of his heavenly family, and welcoming God's heavenly home. God is happy to have you sitting around a kitchen table, eating breakfast with him now. In fact, one of the most common images in the Bible of the new creation is a great banquet where God is the host and he invites you to come and sit with him. Thirdly, uh, Jesus came to call the undeserving. Verse 16, when the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now, I was glad that we had the children's slot just earlier, who were told, you know, you should cheer and clap the Pharisees as they come on, because that's what the people of the day would have done. They're not the comic book villains that perhaps we, we imagine. They are the most strictly observant of all the, the different sects within Judaism, leaders who were absolutely scrupulous in their desire to observe every one of God's commands meticulously. They were respected, actually, by most of the people. And they were obsessed with ritual purity, so they're appalled at Jesus' actions. Now, if you look, you'll notice in verses 15 and 16, one word is, is emphasized. It's repeated three times. It's the word eating. And I think the point is, look, you can't keep ritual separation when you're eating a meal with someone, especially not a Middle Eastern meal where you sit sharing the plates with one another. In Acts 11, a few years after this, the apostles themselves will be utterly scandalized when they hear Peter, their leader, has shared a meal with a Gentile in their home. The reason goes back to the, the laws of purity and separation in the Old Testament. Now, those Old Testament laws that you can't eat certain sorts of food and you can't eat with certain sorts of people, they're meant to be a big visual illustration to help us understand that sin, our moral failings, make us unclean in God's eyes. And all the ritual washing and the, and the rules about avoiding unclean people was to drive the point home that that's what it's like with us and God. And yet here is Jesus eating a meal with the most morally, spiritually unclean people imaginable. But as in last week's passage in 2, 1 to 12, Jesus doesn't offer an excuse or an apology. He ups the ante in verse 17. On hearing this, Jesus said to them, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but those who are ill. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. He doesn't say, oh, I was unaware of their political affiliation when I accepted the invitation and I regret my team didn't vet them carefully enough. 
He says, yeah, of course. I knew exactly what they're like. I know exactly what they've done. I came for people like this. I headhunted Levi. So why would the God who established the laws of nature fracture them to enter into his creation as a human being? Why would he do it? Three times Mark gives us purpose statements where Jesus says, this is why I've come. Firstly, uh, back in chapter 1, verse 38, I came to preach the message of repent and believe the good news. There is now salvation, so come back to God. 2, verse 17, here, I came to call sinners. And then 1045, he came to serve, giving his life as a ransom for many by dying in their place. All three of them stress, Jesus came to call and to save sinners. That's what he's like. Okay, let's think about three implications of this passage. Three implications of this message that Jesus came to call the undeserving. Firstly, a warning. Jesus didn't come for everyone. Jesus didn't come for everyone. Well, isn't that heresy? Well, kind of. Okay, I'm being clickbaity, if you like. The Bible's clear. Anybody who turns to Jesus, anybody who puts their trust in him, is saved for all eternity. But Jesus makes this point very explicitly in verse 17. It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but those who are ill. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. What does he mean by that? Well, righteous very simply means right with God. That's basically what it means. Now, Jesus is not saying, hey, look, there's a category of people. There are a certain kind of person who I haven't come to save, who can't be saved. Rather, he's saying there are people, there's a category of people who deny they need saving. That's his point. Let me say that again. Jesus is not saying there are some people who I just refuse to save. He's saying there are some people who refuse to recognize they need saving at all. Jesus came for those who recognize I'm not righteous. I am sick with sin. Now, there are two groups of people who refuse to recognize that, and they come from opposite ends, actually, of the moral spectrum. Uh, Some, like the religious leaders in Mark 2, they think that there are some people who are sinful, but I'm not one of them. The self-righteous. Others, though, like many supposed Christian leaders today, think, well, no one's sinful at all. So firstly, the self-righteous, like the religious leaders in Mark 2, They don't think they're in need of God's help, of Jesus' help, because they look at the tax collectors and the the wicked tabloid sinners who've accepted Jesus' help, and they think, look, I'm nothing like them. If that's what spiritually sick looks like, then I'm healthy. And the truth is, nothing tests our recognition that I am a sinner in need of Jesus' salvation than when I see someone who is far more wicked, far more perverted, far more self-centered than me say, I'm a sinner. I need Jesus' salvation. We think, well, hang on. (laughs) Surely I don't need the same cure as them. Seriously. If they are a sinner, then there must be another different category to describe me because I am very different from them. But that is to mistake the symptoms for the disease. It assumes that because my symptoms are different, less obviously serious, we can't have the same disease. 
you remember back to COVID? Oh, happy days. Uh, the, uh, our children were generous enough to share it with us, uh, which is lovely of them. And so Jules and I got it at the same time. And my wife felt awful, feverish, out of breath, and completely lost her sense of taste and smell. Being a man, I was far more seriously ill. And um, being a man, I was brave and didn't make a fuss about it, of course. Uh, but I never lost my sense of smell. Never lost my sense of smell. Same disease, but with different symptoms. The Bible says we are all infected with the same disease. We are all sinners. And that is a message that those who've had nice upbringings often struggle to accept. Perhaps we're not uh, crass enough to think, I'm not a sinner. But the truth is, I do feel I'm in a very different category to, to those massacring people on the news in the Middle East or trafficking desperate migrants across the channel in leaky boats. My pride, my self righteousness, my lack of love for others, it looks just very different from those. A lot less serious, if I'm honest. But they are symptoms of the same disease. And they prove that I too am in desperate need of Jesus' cure. But there is another group uh, who reject Jesus' diagnosis. As some who claim to be Christian leaders today proclaim not only does Jesus welcome everybody who comes to him, which he does, but that he affirms their lifestyles too. Now the particular issue in our culture is usually sex because we've got this weird idolatrous obsession with sex. But whatever the issue, it's a lie. Jesus says that like sick people need a doctor, we sinners need Jesus. We need his salvation. And if the Bible calls something sin, then it is not to be affirmed and celebrated. It needs to be repented of and healed. Mark 1, 14 to 15 records, Jesus came to preach a message of repentance. He came commanding us, turn away from sin. Not to encourage us, hey, keep going, there's nothing wrong with you. You're fine the way you are. So don't be fooled. Don't be fooled by the fact that there are far more wicked people out there than most people in here. Don't be fooled by the siren voices of wolves in shepherd's clothing telling you, you're not really a sinner at all. God doesn't think anybody's sinful. We will only come to Jesus for help if we recognize, I am not right the way I am. I am a sinner. I need God's help. But this is where the good news really kicks in. Here's the encouragement. Jesus can heal the disease of sin. See, sin is the fatal affliction of all humanity. We sin because I'm a sinner born with the disease. Now, the symptoms look different in all of us. But every one of us is infected and the disease is fatal. Oh, yeah, we walk, we talk, we work, we go on holiday. But we are the living dead. Our physical death, just a dreadful illustration of the eternal spiritual death all of us are walking towards. And no human has ever been able to cure the disease. But Jesus came as the doctor who is the cure. I was uh, reading one of the great moments of the history of medicine. Uh, it came in 1922. People debate the, the details a little bit, but the story is wonderful. The hospital um, in, attached to the University of Toronto uh, had a diabetes 
diabetes clinic, a, ch a children's diabetes clinic. There's a, a child. What happened at that point, basically, if someone slipped into a diabetic coma, that was it. They just lay there in the coma waiting to die. But then early in the 20th century, uh, scientists Fred Banting, Charles Best, and John McLeod discovered how to extract and purify penicillin. And having done so, uh, they performed a number of successful trials. And then on this particular day, they went into the children's coma ward in Toronto Hospital and began to inject the living dead, these comatose children, whose parents were just waiting for them to die. And as they injected the last child, the children began to wake up. And the doctors described it as, as like Ezekiel's vision of the Valley of Dry Bones in the Bible, as these living dead, woke up and rose to joyful new life. Jesus came as the cure for sin, where all of us were the living dead. He came and brings us to eternal life. It's no, it's no surprise he uses medical language here. That's why I had us read uh, verses 1 to 12 as well. Just after he's healed the paralyzed man, he wants us to see, look, his ability to deal with sin is as complete and absolute and as immediate as his ability to heal that paralyzed man. See, on the cross, he suffered the punishment that sin deserves. He died the death which should rightly be ours. He hung naked, mocked, humiliated, and condemned. In other words, he took all our guilt and shame and left none for us to bear ourselves. We become right with God, righteous. No need to hide in fear and shame. And one day, he will cure us of the disease completely. So we'll be free of the symptoms of sin, the self-obsession, the self-delusion, the self-harm of our sinful desires will be gone forever. So stop trying to explain away your sin. Stop trying to minimize or make excuses. Oh, it's not that bad. They're worse. If, if you'd come from my family, it's God's fault for making me like this. There's that, uh, I'm sure most people have seen the, the film Schindler's List, um, terribly moving film about the Holocaust. And there's a, a number of horrendously emotive scenes in it. One that um, really stuck in my mind was the, the camp doctor appearing to decide who was healthy enough to be allowed to live and who was just useless. They're sick, weak, and they just needed to be exterminated right then and there. And these desperate people forced to strip naked and, and, they're, uh, and the women are all pricking their fingers to get blood to rub into their cheeks. They look like they have a bit of colour that they, they might fool the doctor into thinking they're healthy enough to be kept. It's an awful, awful scene. Are you healthy enough to be worth keeping? Oh, it's the very opposite to how it works with God. When we think of God and judgment, we're, we're desperate to appear healthy enough to cover up our, our, our wickedness and our, our, our self-love and, and all, the, all of our shame. And we just hope we can impress this, this cruel, hard God enough that I'm good enough. And yet God says, no, 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 you misunderstood. I've come for those who are sick. I've come to save. I've come to welcome. I've come to heal. When Jesus has come to, to offer the cure to our deadly disease, why on earth pretend you're not infected? 
We can drop the masks, confess we're sinners, and come for healing. And this leads us to the last thing, wonder that God is so full of love, compassion, grace, and mercy. I mean, think about what this says about God. A God who makes it his mission to come to heal the unworthy and unwanted. Who welcomes to his table. You're perverted, you're self-centered, come on in. Who calls into his service the obnoxious and unpleasant whose love is so expansive and gracious that he loves the unlovable. Do you remember those games of football or whatever sport at break time in school? Two captains and then everybody else lined up and they leave the worst to the end. Well, Jesus has come and in these early chapters, he's selecting who's going to be on his team. The leaders of his new people, the kingdom of God, this revolutionary new humanity worthy of the eternal paradise of God. And spiritually speaking, he starts at the wrong end of the line. He picks the most spiritually hopeless, unpromising, unworthy. As the Apostle Paul puts it, with a scum of the earth. And he does that because he has the power to heal and transform those people. And he does that because he's the kind of God who just loves to do that. The kind of God who loves to take what is broken and fix it. The kind of God who, who loves to take what everyone else has discarded as worthless and make it priceless. The kind of God who loves to take the very worst of us and make us worthy and healthy and whole. I came across uh, this quotation this week. It runs counter to the grain of our culture, which tells me uh, we must love ourselves. I must value myself. I must see myself as worthy. But it does show the heart of the gospel. The good news of the gospel is not there must be something truly wonderful about us if God can love us and accept us so readily. But that there must be something truly wonderful about God. God did not express his love in Jesus Christ in response to our worthiness, but to redeem us from our unworthiness. Actually, the fundamental problem with most of us is not deficient self-esteem, but an inadequate divine esteem. Treasure the grace with which he reaches out to us. There is no need to wear a mask with a God like this. No need to fear that we'll be found out for who we truly are and rejected. He didn't call us because he thought we were spiritually healthy enough to merit acceptance. He called you because he loves to heal sinners. It's just who he is. So whatever you feel like last thing at night or first thing in the morning, when the doubts and the fears and the self-condemnation and self-loathing flood into your mind. You can say, bring it on. The darkest thoughts. The deepest shame. Yep. It may be I'm even worse than that. Jesus came for people like that. Jesus came to heal people like me. Let's pray. Our Father God, we thank you that the Lord Jesus Christ came not to gather the worthy, not to seek the most spiritually healthy, but as a doctor to heal the sick. Help us to have the the integrity and honesty to own our sin and to rejoice that you are the kind of God who loves to heal sinners. 
What wonderful news. Fill us with joy, we pray. Amen.